6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, Dr. Chuck Missler's daily radio program connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Misser completes his session entitled, The Minor Prophets. There's also an oft-quoted verse in Micah 6, 8. You'll find it hanging on many homes. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and, uh, and what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before thy God. That says it all. Many people look at this as a perfect, precy summary of God's requirements. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before thy God. Let's go to Nahum. In uh, the Gospel of John, it says, No prophet come out of Galilee. Remember that? And who, whoever heard of the prophets coming out of Galilee, whoever said that hadn't read their Old Testament because there are two prophets at least. Jonah was out of the Galilee, and so was Nahum. And both of them were out of the Galilee, and both of them to Nineveh, to the Assyrians. This is about a century after Jonah. Again, they need repentance. Nahum goes there with a message. They don't accept it, so they get wiped out. So we have the doom of Nineveh, the world's greatest city in those days. Capernaum. You've all heard of Capernaum. It's Kafir Nahum. That's the village of Nahum. That's where he came from. And it's being messages that Jehovah will not acquit the wicked. It objectifies for all peoples, for all time, the governmental method of God with Gentile nations. God will forgive sin that's repented of. He will not condone sin persistent in. That says it all. God will forgive sin repented of. Not just confessed, but repented of. And he will not condone sin persisted in. And that same God rules the world today. That's why it's important, that's why these lessons have historical context, they have prophetic context, they also have personal application, every one of them. So in the book of Nahum, it talks about Nineveh's doom is declared, described, and deserved. And the decisive test of the prediction is its fulfillment. <laughs> and it certainly was fulfilled. Do you realize that in the field of archaeology, for centuries, they didn't even believe that Nineveh existed? There was no evidence of it. Alexander went over, didn't even know it was there. It was buried. Not only lost, it was buried. It was 1849 that scholars made history by discovering Nineveh, digging it up. It's all in Iraq, in a, we, you know, the place that's called today is Iraq, but it's a. Nineveh really was buried. Let's go to Habakkuk. He's agonized, he's perplexed because of the ostensible silence, inactivity, and apparent unconcern of God. He's, he, and he, from the way he sees it, he, he doesn't understand uh, what's going on, and why would God use a people even more wicked than Judah themselves? He, he's talking about God is going to use the Babylonians to wipe out Judah. Babylonians are worse than Judah. He's, he's, he's struggling with good and evil and so forth. But in this perplexity about God's apparent silence and the strangeness of God's apparent ways, he brings up some very, very interesting things. We're going to go to verse 4 in a minute. The just shall live by faith. 
He's going to focus on rest in the day of tribulation. But this interesting, many people don't realize how important Habakkuk 2.4 is. The just shall live by faith. This was the catchword that led to the Reformation. God by Martin Luther was uh, a very, very diligent, committed uh, scholar and just totally disturbed by his own sin. He was really obsessed with his sinfulness. And he went through all the trappings of the medieval church, all the things that they did in those days to deal with that. And, and it was just getting worse and worse until a monk said, look at Habakkuk 2.4. And he looked at this verse, the just shall live by faith. And that caused him to wake up and to realize that you can't, no matter what you do in the flesh, it's not going to work that you live by faith, not by abusing yourself and penance or tithing or going to services regularly. All those things are of the flesh. The just shall live by faith. And when he realized what that meant, he uh, tried to post some corrections in the denomination he was part of. All they did is excommunicate him, and that led to the whole Reformation. But that was the the, the whole byword of the Reformation. It's interesting that it was all anticipated by the Apostle Paul. He writes a trilogy of epistles on this verse. The just shall live by faith. Who are the just? Paul's definitive statement of Christian doctrine, called the Book of Romans, quotes this verse as the key verse and explains justification, which is by faith alone. Well, how should the just live? How shall they live? The book of Galatians is Paul's answer to that one. The just shall live. How shall they live? Galatians 3.11 quotes this verse as the cornerstone to the book of Galatians. How the just shall live. The just shall live by faith. In Hebrews 10.38, a verse or two just before the great faith chapter of the Bible, the hall of faith of Romans 11. Excuse me, Hebrews 11. The great faith chapter, Hebrews 11, is uh, 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 on how the just shall live, by faith. So it's interesting that these three epistles, Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews, are a trilogy explaining, amplifying the homiletics, if you will, behind, and the, and the theology behind Habakkuk 2.4. And uh, some say, well, that doesn't prove that Paul wrote uh, Hebrews. Well, if Paul didn't write Hebrews, even a greater miracle that these Different writers architected a trilogy without their knowledge, but stranger things have happened. Now, uh, it's interesting that some of these, Obadiah, Nahum, and Habakkuk, were uh, prophets against Israel's enemies. Obadiah against Edom, Nahum against Assyria, and Habakkuk really against Babylon. Well, let's get to the book of Zephaniah. We're getting down to the wire here. He talks about the wrath coming upon Judah and the wrath upon all nations. He takes the, from west to east, Philistia and Moab and Ammon, and then south to north, Ethiopia and Assyria. After the wrath, there will be healing, conversion of the Gentile nations, and restoration of the covenant people. Zephaniah also includes, by the way, a little prediction that when Israel returns to the land, they'll speak pure Hebrew. Now that's astonishing, because they were out of the land for a good part of 2,000 years, and when they returned to the land, Hebrew was reemerged as the... Uh, Language. Many language experts said they never can revive a dead language. Well, the, if Zephaniah was walking down Düsseldorf Street, he could read the menus. 
because it's, it's Hebrew he would understand. The Minor Prophets, we went through 12. We're going to go through a couple more here yet, but Hosea went to the northern kingdom. So did Amos. Joel, Micah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi to the southern kingdom. And then we have, of course, uh, Obadiah to Edom, Jonah, and Nahum to uh, the Assyrians. So that's the, that's the quick spread of the Minor Prophets. Again, they're not in chronological order, nor are they clustered by who they are addressing, but that's the way they are. These last three, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, are prophets, uh, prophets post-exile. In other words, they prophesied after the nation came back from Babylon. Haggai is burdened with the rebuilding of the temple, Zechariah and Malachi uh, in the days of Nehemiah. Haggai has a message to arouse, then support, then confirm and assure, all having to do with the trauma going about trying to build the temple. Many lessons in Haggai, just about our own personal walk. But his focus is rebuilding of the temple. The problem that he faced is the prophecy had become a narcotic. What I mean, what I mean by that is that they knew that they were prophetically had arrived, they're rebuilding the temple, so they kicked back. God's going to do this. And there's an analogy in a sense. Many people, you know, who are pre-trib, the rapture's coming uh, and we're under grace and so they just kick back and are not busy about God's work. That's, that's in that sense, some of these views can become uh, self-limiting. Uh, so this gave way to hopeless inevitability. And that's one of the problems with Calvinism. People, you're, you're predestinated to be saved, so okay, yeah, it's your problem, you know. You know Calvinists often aren't very energetic about evangelistic crusades because everything's predestined, right? You know, there's an attitude that can come out of some of these views that's not constructive and leads to indifference. And it can come from several points. Any, any of these views, however valid they may be, can still give, give excuse to inaction. We need to remember that without Him we can, of course, but without us, He won't. We need to understand that prayer is God's way of enlisting us in what He wants to do, putting burdens on us that we'll roll up our sleeves and accomplish what He's after. A couple other things that you might find interesting in Haggai, just to give you a few highlights here. In Haggai 2.15 it says, Now I pray you consider from this day upward, from before a stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord. In other words, he's talking about the beginning. Consider now from this day and upward, from the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, even from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. That's in Haggai 2, 15 and 18. The four and twentieth day of the ninth month. Pick that up. In Ezekiel 24, it says, and again in the ninth year, in the tenth month, in the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, write thee the name of the day, even this same day, the king of Babylon set himself against Jerusalem this same day. So that's the trigger, the other one's the consummation. Let's take a look at this. The ninth year, the tenth month, tenth day of the month. This is dated from 2 Kings 25 and Jeremiah 52, but here's the net of it is. At the very time the Babylonian army was surrounding Jerusalem, Ezekiel in Babylon, hundreds of miles away, was writing that down. The 10th day of Tebeth, 589 B.C. He's documenting it for God's purposes. Later on, when they're finally released and Haggai, you know, they're, they're starting to build a temple, Haggai nails down the date that these, these desolations of Jerusalem ended. The 24th day of Kislev. Well, that's kind of interesting because the interval between these two dates is 25,200 days. That's 70 years of 360 days each. 
to the very day of the 70 years that Jeremiah had predicted. To the day. To the day. There's, you never use the word approximate in God in the same sentence. I think he... Okay. Zechariah. Early prophecies about when the temple was being built, and the later prophecies after they were built, and then a lot by the second coming. He has all kinds of visions. We can't go through all of them. They're, some of them are quite enigmatic. Some are quite very colorful. There's four horses, four horns, four smiths. Then there's a measuring line. Then there's crowning of Joshua the priest. That's a, not Joshua. That's a different Joshua, obviously. He's a priest. But crowning a priest is messianic. Only Christ is both a priest and a king. And then the one about the golden lampstand, the filing world. The woman in the ephod holds the key, I believe, to the mysteries about Babylon. We'll be talking about that when we get to Revelation. We talk about mystery of Babylon and the rest of it. And the four chariots and so forth. But there's a couple here that I think is kind of interesting. Here's a, a, a prediction in Zechariah 12, verse 2 and 3. You want to be aware of. God says to Zechariah, Behold, I'll make Jerusalem a cup of trembling to all the people round about. In that day I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be torn in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. You know, that's actually ridiculous. That may have made sense 2,500 years ago, the days of Zechariah, that Jerusalem would be a big issue. But here's a city that has no natural resources, has no rivers, doesn't even have a harbor. It's no longer on critical caravan routes. There's no reason for Jerusalem to be relevant to anyone, except for religious reasons. And I thought the world is a religious cup of trembling to all nations. That's ostensibly absurd on the one hand, and yet the reality this very night. As we have this discussion this evening, the late lights are burning in every capital of every country on every uh, that are in, that are internationally relevant, struggling as to what position to take regarding the issue of Jerusalem. How interesting that is, that the entire world is struggling over this very issue. The fallacy of the peace process. Notice how I spell peace, P-I-E-C-E. -E. It's built on a false premise. Peace process is based on the premise that reducing the size of Israel will bring peace. No. It's the, the enemies of Israel made it very clear. It's not the size of Israel, it's the issue. It's the existence of Israel. They're insisting that Israel give up what they cannot give up. This whole process assures an armed conflict, in fact, probably nuclear. That's exactly what we see shaping up on our near horizon. That's exactly what the Bible lays out, how interesting it is. And we go through all the background of this in briefings on this, and we also try to monitor this for those of you that stay current with our subscriptions, either our weekly newsletter on the Internet, which is free, or our journal that comes out monthly. But let's move on. Zechariah 14 is a very famous passage. We all have heard it one time or another, I'm sure. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. Whoops, wait a minute. When did the Lord fight in the day of battle? Well, I can mention one, Joshua 5, the Battle of Jericho. It wasn't Joshua, despite the song. Check it out. But he's going to fight again, and he says, And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof, toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley. Half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. There is a fault line under the Mount of Olives that's waiting for the pressure of a foot. His. Interesting, interesting. Very tangible, very real. 
The second coming of Jesus Christ. Christ is going to rule in our hearts. Gee, I sure hope so, but that's not what's talking about here. He's talking about physically coming back and taking over. Indeed, he will. There's another verse that's interesting in a number of ways here. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they've pierced. Ooh. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. I'll pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Here's a prediction again of crucifixion. We find it in Psalm 22. We find it all through the Old Testament. Here again we find that he's going to have his piercings as emblems. Just as he did before Thomas. Handle me and see. But there's something else about this thing that I think is even more provocative. If you look carefully at this in the Hebrew, you'll discover there's an untranslated word. There's a little aleph and a tau between the me and whom. If it, if it was trans it's untranslated. Now the aleph and the tau, when it's connected with a makef to a verb, implies the direct object of a verb. That little elephant tower has four different uses. But, uh, and one of them is to, as an as a, um, indefinite pronoun, second person masculine singular. It's called a hypocatastasis in the Greek, or putting them underneath. A hidden but declarative implied metaphor expressing a superlative degree of resemblance, interestingly enough. But there's no makef on this one, so it's not the direct object of verb. Another way to read this would be, they shall look upon me, the Aleph and the Tau, whom they've pierced. The Aleph and the Tau is the Hebrew equivalent of the Alpha and the Omega. They shall look upon me, the Aleph and the Tau, whom they've pierced. We find that same thing in Genesis 1, by the way. Bereshit bara Elohim, and there's an Aleph and a Tau there that can be, might be, an allusion to none other than the one who is the first and the last, the, uh, the Alpha and the Omega of Jesus Christ. There's one other thing, in, another little tidbit in Zechariah we'll throw out here. It's the only physical description of the Antichrist I can find in the Bible. Here he's called the idol shepherd, not idol like lazy, idol like a false worship. Woe to the idle shepherd that leaveth the flock. The sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye. His arm shall be clean dried up and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. That's all it says. That's the end of that chapter. It goes on to other subjects. One of these little tidbits. This leader, this false leader, this false shepherd, apparently has got an arm that's useless and a right eye that is lost. And you wonder if that's a physical description uh, that leads to taking an identity with him. If you swear allegiance to him, you take his mark on your forehead or on your wrist as an identity of allegiance to him, which if you do that is a forever barrier to being saved. Much of what the book of Revelation deals with are people who will have this jeopardy of being, having an allegiance with him. No man will be able to buy, sell, or have a job without his number. 
Anyway, that's uh, for what it's worth, kind of one of the little tidbits. In there. Let's go to the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi. I sometimes say Malachi, the Italian book, but I'm kidding, of course. <laughs> this is the final dis message to a disobedient people. The ceasing of prophecy with Malachi might account for the segmenting of the initial week of Gabriel's prophecy of 70 weeks. Remember, it was seven weeks and three score and two weeks. And and one of the conjectures, why is it broken up that way? They're adjacent, so it doesn't matter, but uh, it may be that that is the, the issue here. But in any case, you know, it's interesting, uh, when Jesus has his um, temptations by Satan, he makes the point you'd never tempt God. All through the scripture, you can find admonitions that you never put God to the test. And that's certainly, you don't test God. You don't dare him. That's, but there is an exception, and this exception is fascinating. There is a dare that God gives you. God dares you in a very peculiar way. In fact, he proposes here, what he proposes here is the solution to every financial problem. Wow. We ought to take a look at this. In Malachi 3.10, God says, Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. God is daring you to put him to the test. He says, prove me now herewith. You know, this is an astonishing verse, that the God of the universe would put himself in a box. He's saying, if you do this, Call my bluff. I dare you to tithe. Because if you do, I will open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing and not be room enough to receive it. And you can find many, many people who will swear to this. But that doesn't matter. You need to find out for yourself. You need to find out for yourself. What an interesting dare. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Quite a commitment. Prove me now herewith. Well, we have the silent years between the Testaments. Deserve some quick comments. We talk about Antiochus Epiphanes in 167 BC, the abomination of desolation, a historical event that is very important to understand because Jesus makes allusion to it as a trigger of when to split out of Jerusalem. That event by Antiochus Epiphanes, of course, led to the Maccabean Revolt in 165 BC, that, which led to the rule of the Hasmoneans. And that was subsequently followed by the Roman conquest, appointing Herod the king. And that closes the uh, 400 years of silence for Malachi until an angel visits Zechariah with an announcement. You need to understand now, we've just finished the Old Testament. The Old Testament is incomplete. It has unexplained ceremonies, all kinds of sacrificial rituals that need to be explained. It has unachieved purposes. There are all kinds of covenants yet to be fulfilled. There are unappeased longings. The Old Testament is full of those. And unfulfilled prophecies. 
There are 300 prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ's first coming. For every one of those, there's at least seven. At well over 2,000, somewhere between two and 3,000 details about a second coming. And they will be fulfilled. Jesus challenges you. Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And when he says Scriptures here, he's really talking about the Old Testament. In John 5, that's what they had in their hands was the, was the Septuagint. Search them, for you think, in them you think you have eternal life. They are they which testify of me, he, he, he says. Well, in the subsequent sessions, hour 13, we'll go through the Messianic thread. We'll talk about the Messianic thread in total. We'll also demonstrate how sure can we be of these things. Lord Kelvin says, we don't know much about something until you can measure it. Okay, look, can we measure our confidence? We'll go into that in hour 13. Hour 14, we'll talk about the New Testament, where it came from, how it was put together. Many Christians are woefully ignorant of that. And in hour 15, we'll take the Gospels. We'll actually go in one hour, we'll put all four Gospels together and trace a reconciliation of the whole package geographically. It'll be a, our way of summarizing uh, those four books. Uh, that in itself is, uh, is ambitious. So with that, let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the privilege you've given us to be able to meet without hassle, without persecution, without interference. We realize that that's a unique blessing. Father, we just pray that you'd help us take advantage of these days. Help us to discover the treasures you've hidden here for us. And above all things, Father, we pray that you would illuminate that path before us, that through your Holy Spirit and your Word, you would make it ever more clear what you would have of each of us in the days that remain as we seek to be more fruitful stewards of the opportunities you've brought before us. And as we commit ourselves without any reservation into your hands, in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through his series entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, here on 6640. If you would like further information about materials available from Dr. Missler, please contact us through this station, or visit our website at khouse.org. Until next time, when Dr. Missler continues this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.